Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm really excited to be joined today by Alexander Titus, the Chief Strategy Officer at the Advanced Regenerative Manufacturing Institute. Alex, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Maybe to kick us off, we'd love to learn a little bit about you and your background and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I really appreciate you having this kind of conversation. It's pretty cool to have such a diverse group of people. It sounds like your audience is pretty widespread and impressive about kind of the reach you get to have these conversations. That's important to me because I've spent a kind of a wide range of opportunities in my career. When I studied in college, I was a biology and biochemistry major, pre-med, like most people who don't understand what they want to do in life, but that doctors are always the important thing that everyone wants to, wants to be when they're growing up. I mean, I took my first computer science class my last semester of college and realized that I had finally fallen in love with something to study, but had studied the wrong thing for all of college or an adjacent wrong thing, if you will. So I moved to Silicon Valley right after college and started working in the Bay Area, but at that point, a biology degree in Silicon Valley was about as worthless as degree as you could have. Even in an English major, I could have gotten a job in marketing easier than I did with biology. So it was cool. I ended up uh, actually working at a recruiting team at Box, the cloud storage company that really is booming right now. Um, and I did that for a little while, but eventually the call of the wild got me and I took a year off and decided to travel and spend time traveling through Central America and Australia had a blast, met a lot of phenomenal people, and then eventually got to the point where I was ready to be a productive member of society again and ended up in Seattle uh, working at a software company, Tableau Software, so data visualization. So I starting to get more into the data realm, but trending with my biology degree into some cool areas. I did that for a while, had a blast, but then again, the call of the wild struck and my fiance at the time, now wife, she and I quit our jobs and flew to Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, which is about 300 miles north of the Arctic Circle. If you've ever seen the show Ice Road Truckers, it's that road is the first 500 miles of the Dalton Highway. And so we rode our bikes for about three months, a little over 3,000 miles from Prudhoe Bay, Alaska to San Francisco, where at that point we realized it was time to go on with our lives and go back to be productive. And so it was that point that I decided I wanted to go to grad school. We had a little bit of time to kill, so we spent some time working part-time. I was working part-time, and she was working in Detroit, and we ended up living in the Motor City Casino for about five months, so I got to play blackjack full-time for a couple months as well through all of that, and it was great, and I was applying to PhD programs in statistics and data science, and so when I walked into interviews and said, yeah, I've been playing blackjack in a casino full-time for three months, and I'm winning money, Everyone said, oh, you must understand a little thing or two about statistics. So why don't you come study with us? And I had a great time. So I was in a, the quantitative biomedical sciences program at Dartmouth studying statistics and machine learning as it relates to cancer genomics and got to do a bunch of great stuff and spent the time as a research fellow at the, on the Alexa AI team at Amazon, uh, a little bit of time at an investment firm in DC that st- focused on biology, Incutel. And then through a series of fortunate events, I had a mentor reach out to me and asked me to come join the Department of Defense and be the first person to lead enterprise strategy for biotech for the DOD. So you can think of this role in a way as deputy CTO for biotechnology at the DOD. 
And it was a phenomenal experience. The U.S. is really starting to take a turn when it comes to the bioeconomy and biotechnology. I mean, we've always been a leader in biotechnology, but now there's even more focus and emphasis on it. And as we know, in the middle of COVID, there's extremely heightened interest in therapeutics and vaccines and all kinds of different biotechnology applications. So I did that for a little while and now ended up where I'm at now. And I'm now the chief strategy officer at the Advanced Regenerative Manufacturing Institute or ARMI, A-R-M-I uh, for short to make it easy. And so now we focus on regenerative manufacturing, which is a lot of the tissue engineering and cell therapies and things like that. So I get to spend my days daydreaming about the future of biotech. You might say biotech 2050 and thinking about how we're going to get there. So it's, it's been awesome. It's been a very diverse and eclectic set of experiences, but I think every step has been well worth it along the way. Well, that's great. Well, it certainly sounds like uh, you've lived a full life so far, you know, having had the traditional academic background and, and career, it sounds like you've had the opportunity to do a diverse set of roles and responsibilities and activities and experiences, which is great. I'm curious, you know, since a measurable portion of our uh, listenership are earlier on in their career. Any interesting, unique guidance you might share with them about their own careers and their advancement, especially if they are in a traditional sort of scientific domain? Yeah, that's a great question. And I have very strong opinions about this kind of stuff all the time. I, I like to share my thoughts on the internet a lot. And I, I strongly believe that our industry overall overemphasizes PhDs in graduate education in areas that are not research focused. So of course, I'm a PhD holder. Lots of people have PhDs and it makes a lot of sense if you're doing research and leading research teams. But if you have aspirations to do another part of the industry, which our industry is full of lawyers and business and regulatory and all of the aspects that make business happen, not just the biological sciences, there are so many cool things to do. And it's far more important the experience you have than the educational background you have. I am now working fully in a chief strategy role, and I've spent much of my career thinking about enterprise business strategy, but I don't have an MBA. And I also know many phenomenal senior scientists, distinguished senior scientists who don't have PhDs. So there's not one route to where you want to go. And just because we as an industry haven't quite woken up to that fact, I would encourage everyone to do what is the most appealing and fun for you rather than committing to five plus years of a less than fun living experience in grad <laughs> school uh, for, for the outcome. Well, that's good sage advice. And, you know, speaking of things that are fun and enjoyable, obviously both uh, in the public sphere as well as from your own uh, sort of uh, intro, sounds like biomanufacturing is one of those topics that you find fun and enjoyable and have spent a fair amount of time thinking about. You know, it's obviously something that's critical to our country and our economy, but perhaps is often, it's sort of an unsung hero, if you will, of the, the manufacturing landscape. Maybe to help level set the audience, can you just give us a quick overview of biomanufacturing, what it means, how we interact with it and how we benefit from it and its impact on things like supply chain? So you're right. I spend a lot of time thinking about things like biomanufacturing and talking about it. And in reality, it's the, the less sexy version of biotech. My background is in data science. And so everyone loves to talk about AI, but no one loves to talk about data management. But data management is what makes AI actually thrive. And so in biotech, biomanufacturing is really that unsung hero, to your point, where if we have a new biological technology, whether it's a therapeutic or a vaccine, 
or some of the things that are becoming really possible now with synthetic biology that have nothing to do with human health, we have to be able to manufacture those. And so biomanufacturing, while it's a catch-all term, it has a lot of different sub areas. So if you want to think about how to produce uh, new tissues and organs and cell therapies, you have to think about how to scale up large volumes of cells to do whatever you want. If you want to think about my favorite type of biomanufacturing, which is fermentation-based manufacturing. I'm from Oregon originally, and so beer is part of our genetic code. I'm, I'm part hop. <laughs> um, and so but the same concept behind fermentation-based manufacturing is how we can then ferment new products. Industrial ethanol is a fermentation, biomanufacturing fermentation process. But now we have the ability with all kinds of cool stuff coming out with gene editing, CRISPR, synthetic biology, to make those yeast and other microorganisms produce new products we want that are not just alcohol and things like that. Interesting. Now, there are definitely certain areas and types of products, beer being a good example, right? And maybe medicines that, that may be familiar to many people as being often uh, a product of fermentation manufacturing to help put some guardrails around it. Any guidance or, or rules of thumb as to what types of products or output is ideal for fermentation and traditional biomanufacturing versus not ideal? That is a great question. And I think that in reality, we're, we're right now recognizing that we don't even know all of the things that we can do with fermentation-based manufacturing. So outputs of metabolism have traditionally been the, the optimal solution. So alcohol is an output of metabolism or other natural biological products of different naturally occurring cell functions. But our ability to do synthetic biology and actually engineer microorganisms to do what we want, we, we call it synthetic biology, but what it really enables us to do is exquisite chemistry. And so what traditional synthetic chemistry has done for us, you know, the industrial revolution gave us a phenomenal new suite of products that we can do. And our new fermentation-based capabilities in biomanufacturing are opening up entire classes of products that we were never able to reach before. And so we can replace a lot of current products with a potentially biosynthetic route, but it's the new products that we can't do with traditional chemistries that we're discovering. So better materials and all of these kind of things are really starting to come into its own uh, in the 21st century, but really in this decade, we're going to see uh, I, I think 2020 is the decade of, of the bioeconomy. And so I'm excited to see what comes out of that. And so that on the flip side, the things that are not optimal are the things that are dangerous or ne have a negative health, quote unquote, output on microorganisms. So when you produce highly toxic, acidic types of byproducts, you kill cells, and then it's hard to use cells to produce something that kills itself. So that's a hard to define in terms of each, every product you want to do, but a lot of the best products we have yet to discover. I, I think we have yet to discover what we can manufacture. Well, I think that's certainly uh, great to see that there's a lot of untapped potential perhaps in that space. And so, you know, I know from our prior conversation, there's sort of different aspects to biomanufacturing and obviously a lot of innovation uh, that's going into it. With that sort of overview, maybe it'd be helpful to understand a little bit more about sort of traditional fermentation, what some of the interesting sort of limitations and, and aspects of that technology is, you know, maybe even interestingly, what the most unexpected product is that we interact with as consumers that perhaps is the output of fermentation. 
so there's all kinds of really cool stuff that's starting to come out. And I think one of the limitations up until lately is it's been expensive to be able to get industrial quantities of what you want to manufacture. So ethanol you can do because the microorganisms, the yeast produce a lot of alcohol per unit volume. But when we're starting to do these new synthetic biology-based manufacturing, you don't always get very much per volume. And so it just takes so much, whether it's water or actual feedstock or time to get where you want to go, that's a limiting factor. But we're starting to see people and technologies overcome that. So one of the things that I was doing in my previous role at the Department of Defense is looking at how we can invest in U.S. biotechnology to make those manufacturing easier and more accessible. So I currently work at a, at a DOD partnership. So our nonprofit is a partnership with the DOD focused on manufacturing uh, in the regenerative manufacturing space. But in the fermentation-based manufacturing space, one of my team and a couple of the teams of the Department of Defense launched a, launched a competition to be able to establish bioindustrial manufacturing institute. And so this is going to be an investment partnership between the DOD and whoever ends up winning the award. It's still ongoing, but focused on making and lowering all those hurdles to being able to do biomanufacturing. So if you think about the steps when it comes to fermentation-based manufacturing, you have to have the cells, you have to grow them. So you have to actually ferment things and have more cells grow and have them produce a product. But then you have, you know, we like beer because we just take the output of beer and we can drink it and we don't have to separate the alcohol before we get to consume it. But when you want a product that is producing something like a, like a lubricant, you don't want it full of bacteria or yeast or some other microorganism that you're trying to use. So that separation, that downstream processing, as it's called, is, is a big challenge. And so this Manufacturing Institute is going to focus a lot on developing technologies and techniques, sensors, and those kind of things to help make that process easier. And so that's a big investment, both from that angle and a lot of the rest of the private sector is trying to improve that as well. But once we can overcome those hurdles, from a supply chain standpoint, biomanufacturing gives us the ability to have a much more kind of resilient base. So in, you know, in the pandemic, when supply chains across international lines are starting to get shut down, how do you then turn around and get to produce your own version? So pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical intermediaries is a big focus right now in discussion. How do we produce that type of product here domestically rather than source them from other countries? One of the reasons we have outsourced them is because of the cost of production. So if we can drive down all those costs, then we have the ability to have a much more competitive market in the U.S. when it comes to producing these. The other thing is infrastructure, because we haven't invested as much here and we've outsourced a lot. A lot of the big fermentation-based infrastructure is located in other countries that people need to use. So the investment in all those technologies to make it lower cost, which then increases how valuable and how interesting companies are, interested companies are investing in, in the U.S. is going to be a big aspect of the next decade, I think. And then that will help a lot with supply chains. So one of the things that I'm curious about, especially from the conventional fermentation approach, is that because of the regulatory constraints that sit around fermentation, especially for medicines, my observation has been that innovation has been somewhat constrained or restrained. So one of the examples that I always thought was very interesting was the transition from batch fermentation being done in steel containers to single use, right? As a good example, which not only made it, the process more efficient, but also decreased the capital costs, which is often a challenge with manufacturing. How many 
technologies do you think are in the waiting that have a similar sort of magnitude of impact as single use that simply haven't had the light of day because of conventional dogma or regulations, et cetera? I think a huge number. Of course, I don't have the number off the top of my head exactly, but I think there's a lot because anytime you change anything in your product, once it's passed through the regulatory approval process, you don't want to change a single thing. And every change you do means you have to then go and change that again. One of the big aspects that my current company is focused on is helping build in that kind of regulatory strategy early on when developing a new bio product. And that helps, especially when you start to think about how to get new technologies like single use or something else like that, how do you get the regulators comfortable with those new technologies? Because it's oftentimes prohibitive for the companies because they don't want to go through the hoops. But then the regulators often struggle with that because it's not something that's easy to compare. So it's harder to know if it's safe or not because you don't have a history of comparison. And so a lot of it is going to be helping bring along together the innovators and the regulators to actually make that progress. A good example, it's not in the manufacturing, but it's in the delivery standpoint, traditional syringes versus microneedles. You know, we're going to really have a needle shortage at some point when we have a vaccine. How do you then switch to a different type of delivery? But traditional needles are so well established as a safe way to deliver a vaccine or a medicine therapeutic that we're going to need to help bring the regulators along with the innovators to come up with those new solutions. And COVID-19 might be a good way to kind of force everyone's hand together to be able to get to a solution. So I think that from that standpoint, the silver lining of what we're having to do is rapidly figure out how to shore up our supply chains, rapidly figure out how to deliver new vaccines at scale, or even develop new vaccines. So Moderna's mRNA-based vaccine, that's a whole new manufacturing process as well and delivery. And the regulators, we don't have yet an mRNA-based vaccine that's approved. And so mm-hmm. we're going to have to grow together. Yeah. You brought up an interesting point around how infrastructure needs to be built, especially as new types of products are brought to market, right? The mRNA vaccine being an example. Obviously, in the broader biotech industry, there's a lot of excitement around cell therapy, tissues, CAR-T, etc. And though these therapies philosophically or theoretically have been around for decades, the infrastructure to manufacture them in a scalable, cost-effective way hasn't existed yet. And one of my good friends was very deeply involved with some of the early cell therapy products that were brought to market by uh, Novartis and others. And, you know, one of the common complaints is that a measurable portion of the overall sale price of one of those cell therapies, which is transformative, is the manufacturing cost itself. Yeah. So I'd love to learn a little bit from your experience and some of the work you're doing at Army about regenerative manufacturing, some of the objectives you guys are driving towards and goals, as well as how you see new technologies helping to address those issues of cost, speed, compliance, et cetera. Yeah, definitely. And uh, just for, for all your listeners, regenerative manufacturing really is focusing on the manufacturing process and technologies of regenerative medicine cell therapies, tissue engineering, things like this, because it, similar to my comment about AI and data, it's really comfortable or exciting to think about that new cell therapy. But yeah, the reality of how you produce it is a whole different field in itself. And so, as I said, Army is is a public-private partnership with the DOD focused on, similar to the Manufacturing Institute I just described, focused on lowering the cost barriers and increasing the speed and throughput of this type of manufacturing. 
So we're working on technologies, you know, new sensors to, so you can have a better feedback control for your bioreactors when you're growing cells and culture, things like that. And so the way that it's traditionally done is it's a rather bespoke process. It's low throughput and it makes it really expensive every time you have an error and you have to do an entire new batch. It takes time, takes material. And so if we can have better feedback along the way to that manufacturing process, then that makes it much more cost-effective in, in that regard. Another area that we're really working on is automation and standardization. So similar to how right, Henry Ford and the Model T in the early 1900s really made high throughput production of vehicles possible, that standardization and automation where you can have essentially a manufacturing line of a cell therapy that is tightly controlled, right? If we can get to the Toyota method of cell therapy, then we're going to start to reduce the cost. And that's the reason why just-in-time manufacturing and all these other manufacturing processes in traditional markets are really increasing the throughput and the cost profit margins for a lot of these technologies. That's what we're working on in the tissue engineering and cell therapy space in a whole bunch of different areas, but all of it is around making it scalable, modular, automated, reproducible, and cost-effective. And then we are going to see phenomenal impact of a lot of these therapies. You think about it in the tissue engineering space. So you could think of our company goal is to eliminate the organ donor transplant list. So if you think about how many people every year aren't able to get a transplant because someone else has not had the unfortunate event to get in an accident or die in a way that they could donate organs to save another life. That's a pretty low throughput, really kind of old school way when we can, if we had the ability for someone with liver failure to actually be able to manufacture their own replacement liver, then we can save a lot of lives. But that depends on a lot of these technologies that we're talking about to make that possible. Now, when you think about the technologies or the approaches or the, the systems you guys are developing, how much of that is intended to be for like net new systems or net new capabilities or capacity versus as a retrofit for existing manufacturing facilities and environments? We're working on almost entirely net new. So we're, we've developed what we call the tissue foundry line. And so this is largely focused on tissue engineering at first, but it's all of our partners. So we're, we're a membership-based organization. So we have over 150 members that each have a unique component where it's good with process automation or good with bioreactor development. And we're encouraging and incentivizing all of our partners to build these modular components to this tissue foundry line where the vision is it's completely closed. So right now, even, we have a model tissue foundry line where you put in a frozen vial of induced pluripotent stem cells at the beginning, and 45 days later, without a single human intervention and not, not touching it once, it washes the vial, punctures the vial, removes the cells, expands the cells, and 45 days later prints a bone ligament bone construct in a fully automated closed system. So right now it's a lot of off the shelf technology in a net new configuration, but we're developing, you know, that's our MVP and we're developing that into be smaller, more modular. And so you can have these tissue foundry lines anywhere you need to have a manufacturing facility to be able to produce these. Interesting. So in the case of that foundry line that you just described as the MVP, which of the parts do you think are rate limiting? Is it the ability to capture the cells and the raw materials is it the physical equipment and infrastructure? 
Is it the quality control? Like which part of that overall process have you found to be rate limiting at the moment? I'm not sure I have the exact answer for that, but the ones that I've seen be rate limiting are, so I I guess I'm not sure there's only one at the moment, but I think cell growth and expansion is, is really important because anytime, as any biologist has suffered through in their life, anytime you grow living things, they're fickle. And sometimes they want to die and sometimes they want to live and cells are no different. And so you have to be able to grow the cells in the right way to provide them the infrastructure and the media and the nutrients to grow how you want them to grow. So I think cell expansion is a slow process. And then I do think quality control in that the kind of start to finish, making sure that it's successful all the way through. And the reason we're working on these individual feedback mechanisms every step of the way is maybe not one step is the slow part, but if a a failed batch then makes it the slow part and you have to repeat that entire process. And so that cell growth and then feedback to make sure they're growing well, they're healthy and differentiating the way we, we want them to. I think that's really one of the rate limiting steps that we're focused on. So it sounds like some of the native components of biology and its fickleness perhaps is a constraint, as well as maybe some of the analytics perhaps or analyses that need to be performed to ensure it meets spec perhaps. Right. And the areas. analytics help us understand what they want. What are the, what is the fickle tendencies of cells? Think of it kind of like when your newborn is crying, they can't communicate with you. So you have, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Are you tired? What do you need? So we're trying to develop the ways to measure what these cells need so we can do that better. And how much do you think, especially from a quality control or analytics perspective, do you think can be moved from being aliquot, episodic, and point-in-time snapshot or after the fact to being real-time in line with some of these new processes? I think there's a huge opportunity to do exactly that. And a lot of what we're Mm -hmm. developing is in line where we have sensors within bioreactors and non-destructive sensors, because that's another big issue is you can't destroy all your product to measure how it's, how your product quality is. And every time you had a TV, you smashed it to see how hard it was, that wouldn't make sense. And so that's, that's a lot of current technology is destructive. And so we're looking for non-destructive ways to measure biology in real time, in line along the whole process. So there's feedback similar to any kind of car manufacturing line. You know, they're checking electronics along the way. They're checking bolts and structural stability every step of the way. Um, so yeah, that's that really is the vision and what a lot of uh, what we're working on is. And you know, during this discussion, you've obviously brought up the automotive industry a couple times uh, as sort of parallels. If there was one industry outside of biomanufacturing or biotech that you would look to for inspiration or perhaps even technologies to repurpose for Army's ambitious goal, what would that industry be? I really do think that it is the automotive industry. So the the technologies, you're not repurposing them on the same way because they have huge manufacturing facilities versus, say, fermentation. But that vision to go from kind of bespoke to fully automated is really important. And so one of our big strategic partners is Rockwell Automation. And Rockwell Automation provides automation services to many of the largest organizations in the world across all these industries. And that vision along that, I really think that the just-in-time Toyota manufacturing model applied to biology and biomanufacturing is how we're going to see revolutionary cell therapies and regenerative medicine uh, impact. Because if you have to pay a million dollars per treatment for a cell therapy, that's never going to scale to more than a handful of people. But we could change the way the world does healthcare if we brought those costs down enough to automate it all. Very interesting. Well, 
You know, the last minute that we've got here, I've got one final question for you, which is, do you think we're in the golden age of biotech right now? I think we are at the start of the golden age of biotech. I think we've had a really long tail with a lot of phenomenal stuff, but I really believe that 2020s is going to be the decade of the bioeconomy. And I think we're going to see this major acceleration. Over the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen huge advances in our understanding of biology and how we measure it. Synthetic biology and gene editing like CRISPR is giving us our ability to tweak and manage. We're able to write DNA and DNA synthesis way better than we ever were able to before. So similar to how the Human Genome Project of the 90s set an entirely new paradigm for how we look at biology, we're now in the, the period where we're setting an entire new paradigm for how we actually write biology. And as soon as we have that read and that write capability, we'll be able to tweak and do so much. And so similar to where we finally had the ability to write software and bring software to everyone, what the mainframe was to the personal computer, I think we're in that that next five, 10 year window, we're going to see that shift. And we are going to see the companies emerge that are no longer the kind of big mainframe computers. Uh, we're going to see a lot of these scrappy startups that become the Apple and the Microsoft of biology. And then hopefully all of our wonderful colleagues and all the large biotech companies pivot and see that. And they don't suffer from the innovator's dilemma where they you know get snuck up on from behind and all of a sudden they don't have the ability to do these new technologies. I see a lot of the Pfizer's and Merck's and J&J's really investing in this, in that forward looking space. And so I think they've learn from the great thinkers before us and are really keeping pace. It's awesome. Well, Alexander, I want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. Really excited to hear more about uh, how Army unfolds as well as uh, the synthetic biology industry and look forward to having you back on the show in the future. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Malok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.